Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Can you hear me on the phone? I do. I've got you coming out of every orifice. <laughs> I'm really not. You're breaking off quite badly. Hello, and welcome to the lock-in, where I finally get to talk to people I want to hear from, in a place I want to be, the pub. For some reason, this bloody thing has started playing back some rubbish. Oh, right. Where were we? I forgot. I have too. Andy Burnham, how has your lockdown been? Oh, it's been tough, uh, Jeremy, because Greater Manchester, as you've probably seen, has not had it easy uh, when it comes to cases and restrictions. Uh, and I'm not somebody who enjoys working at home, I'll be honest. I'm, I'm more uh, get into the city and... Uh, uh, go out after work kind of person. So, yeah, not been the easiest. Do you like the basic message of it, which is that you can't trust other people? Everyone's looking after themselves. This seems to me to be antithetical to everything that Labour stands for. It's certainly difficult, isn't it? This, you know, It's a very divisive situation, isn't it? And we often find, because we've been under restrictions, people will blame the public in Greater Manchester as though they are you know, flouting everything and the breakdown of trust is, is a real worry, isn't it? And I guess on the other hand, you could say well, there's been public support for the measures for vaccination. And those are things that are obviously, you know, the left is sometimes more comfortable with. So it's a mixed picture, I think. You know, we have come through it largely still intact and together. But yeah, it's it's taken a lot from us all, I think, Jeremy. Given the price that we've paid, do you think we should exact some sort of penalty upon China? Well, I don't know if we've got clarity yet, have we, over what precisely uh, happened um, in Wuhan. And, you know, that's the whole question about the lab, isn't it? It's, it's there's no argument it's... about whether it started in Wuhan or not, is there? No, no there's no doubt about that. You know, they're, they're our sister city, or they're the sister city of Manchester. So there's a long relationship, actually, people to people there. And we did send supplies out there. I don't know to what extent the lab uh, has been you know, definitively, you know, identified as having played a role. I honestly don't know the, the truth in that. Certainly, from our point of view, our, our Chinese colleagues certainly provided lots of support with PPE for us uh, when we were facing our pressures. So, you know, from a people-to-people -people side of things, um, there's been a lot of cooperation. 
But the Chinese government denied it at first, didn't they? And then they refused to allow investigators in. Yeah, I think it, it's certainly something that should be, you know, opened up. And the, you know, the World Health Organization, I think, needs to, um, you know, assert itself in this in this space. Um, it, it does, you know, we need to have transparency over the whole uh, of this. You know, not just the public inquiry here and how the government handled it here, but internationally, what happened, how it spread. I think there's going to have to be a, a sort of a process of inquiry all over the world. I think because. The fact that we've been through all of this doesn't mean that another pandemic may not happen. And there's no question about where it started, though, is there? No, there's no question about about that. Um, and as I say, we we were talking to um, uh, people in the Chinese community in Greater Manchester in January uh, 2020, and it was the alarm amongst them about their families was really clear to us very early on. So no, there's no doubt about that. But but what caused it, obviously, is is still a I think, uh, unclear. And you don't think we should try to penalise the Chinese then? Well, I don't think so at this stage. Uh, I don't see that where that would, would get us. And, you know, I think Trump played this kind of approach, didn't he? The, the China virus and all of that. And, you know, we are a divided, polarised world at the moment. And I don't see how that necessarily is going to, to, to help. Let's agree to a process of inquiry after all of this. I think that absolutely is what, what we should agree to. But I do worry, Jeremy, it came on the back of a decade of, you know, quite polarised politics within countries, between countries. Um, and I think coming out of the pandemic, we've got to draw a line under that. I have hopes that the new American president is doing that. Um, and, you know, let's let's move forward in that vein. Whilst also, though, demanding answers on the questions that you're clearly uh, clearly pointing to. What sort of a job do you think Keir Starmer is making of leading the Labour Party? I think he's had a start that no other leader has had, i.e. you come in in a national crisis. I think it absolutely <laughs> limits your your ability to, to set out your stall and to to, to um, you know, project your, your personality. So it's been a tough one, and I think he's handled it well. It's difficult uh, to come in in those circumstances. But the job starts now, really, and you know, I think uh, we will uh, see that more and more as, as the, the year progresses. It's um, obviously a big uh, moment with the Batley and Spend by-election ahead, um, but I, um, you know, I, I, Keir, I know well because he was a member of my shadow home team. It sounds a very grand thing to say that a former DPP was in my, my shadow home team, but he was. He was a great team player on a level with everybody. Uh, Keir is uh, very relatable, likeable, but also highly capable. And I think as the public see more of that, they will, they will warm more and more to him. But they haven't warmed to him so far, have they? Well, I think that's a product of the circumstances, as I said. You know, you're kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't in, in this situation as the leader of the opposition. If you criticise the government, people will say, oh, why is he not you know, doing his bit in a national crisis? If you, if you, um, um, you know, do criticise, um, or, if you, or if you go along with what the government's saying, you get the, the criticism from the other direction. So it's a difficult, it's a really difficult situation, I think. Um, and, you know, I just just as we move beyond the phase that we've been in, I, I think, you know, Labour, I, I hope, will, um, you know, will we'll start to uh, make inroads. And I think we need to because 
This government has got away with a hell of a lot, I would say. Um, you know, it's obviously been challenging for them as well, but there are things that uh, they really need to be pulled up about. Um, and, you know, the procurement issues for one, you know, the, these, are, these are things that other governments haven't got away with. Indeed, I remember, you would never have let it happen to me, uh, Jeremy. I remember, you know, I, I was going to say I miss our encounters. I can't say I do because I'd never emerged unscathed from any uh, encounter with, with you. Um, and uh, I'm quite glad that we don't have them anymore. But I know that you would not have, have let some of what we've seen kind of go by without being challenged. It just wouldn't have happened, I think, with the levels of scrutiny that were applied to the government that I was in. Oh, God, this is moaning about being unfairly treated, is it? No, no, I said we were fairly treated. I didn't like it much. It was hard. Uh, I could probably argue you made me a better politician today than I was then because of the, 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 the going over that you, you regularly gave me and others. So, no, no, I'm not, I'm not saying that we were unfairly treated. I, I just think um, I'm not sure Conservative governments, and particularly this one, get the same level of scrutiny. You know, if we were back then uh, found to be in breach of the ministerial code and uh, it was just said, oh, well, you know, doesn't matter, we're, we're not doing anything, you know, what, what would the response have been? I'm not sure it would have just been the same as, as we've seen in recent times. I, I'm just calling for the same standards you applied, which were the right ones, to, to, to today's, uh, today's political scene. But something has gone wrong with Labour, hasn't it? How else do you explain the fact that Hartlepool is now controlled by the Tories? I felt this happening all throughout my time in, in Parliament. There was a, a, a gradual loss of emotional connection with um, communities that had always, always supported us. Um, you know, they, they kind of were tuning in less and less to, to, to what, what we were saying. And the big break point came with the referendum where, you know, many people in those communities sort of felt Labour was, or the people that were um, uh, speaking for Labour was just in a, di in a different place uh, completely. But, I, you know, I wouldn't just say it was only Brexit. I would say that this built um, over the back end of our time in government um, all the way up. Uh, to that uh, to that referendum, so it's profound. Um, obviously, Scotland has changed in a, a you know a much more dramatic way, but you could say that something of the same has has gone on uh, there. And I think this is about reforging a connection, building from the bottom up. You know, you won't do that from Westminster, and you know that is what that is the the challenge ahead of of Labour to to rebuild that connection with people, and to counter this kind of fallacy that's put forward by the, the right of the Conservative Party, which are in the in ascendancy at the moment, and the further right into other uh, political forces beyond the Conservative Party. They've kind of sold this myth to people that they're the friends of ordinary working class people. Well, I'm afraid they're not, but we've allowed them to do that. And we've got to, um, you know, get much cleverer at how we, um, how we take that on. How did you vote in the referendum, just to remind ourselves? Remain. Um, I wasn't in any doubt about that vote, but I was a slightly reluctant Remainer in that I could see the issues that Lee had with relation to the European Union as it had become by 2016. I could see the issues and I could see the feeling of people that they weren't listened to when they kind of voiced concerns about some of those issues. So I could see and feel it happening 
And that's why I'd say I was a slightly reluctant Remainer because I went to Brussels uh, in uh, 2015 when I was standing to be the leader of the Labour Party and I went there to, to maybe a bit, a bit presumptuous, but I was saying, well, I'm going to need your help if, you know, if, if I win because you, you haven't got the right position on many of these issues uh, for uh, parts of particularly the north of England who, you know, former in industrial areas that um, haven't been served well by um, by uh, the European Union's policies on state aid, for instance. You know, the, the, the EU, I think, it gave, you know, turbocharged the, the service economy and didn't come up with plans to help uh, former industrial areas make a transition or, or good enough plans. So I could see all of this happening. And um, I, you know, I, I was a, a reluctant Remainer because I just don't think they ever took some of those issues seriously enough. And um, I don't think Britain is unique to feeling concerned about some of those issues. But something really seriously went wrong, didn't it? It extended beyond the, the depth of state aid. Yeah, so it, something did seriously um, go wrong. I mean, I, I think it wasn't, you know, helped by a, a Eurosceptic press for as long as I can remember, largely Eurosceptic, not completely. So, you know, there was a negativity about Europe that was just building for years. But then sometimes Europe wasn't its own... Um, uh, its own best friend in that you know there was a, a kind of at times a sort of an aloof sort of feeling you know kind of people very remote from uh, from from the reality on the ground in communities like Lee and I really felt that as a government minister as the member of parliament for Lee but then going to Europe as a as a government minister as a cabinet minister you know the gulf was a pretty big one and and I was you may remember in that period I was kind of talking to these issues quite a lot um I think Labour didn't help because Labour was too London-centric, at times too Brussels-centric, and, and allowed that gap to open up. Uh, but yeah, this this is a this is a a big um, uh, a, a big divide that has opened up, hasn't it? And um, as I say, you don't rebuild it from from uh, from on high. You have to sort of rebuild from the bottom up, and that's why, personally, I believe devolution of power in England is a life raft for the Labour Party. It's an opportunity to uh, create a new connection, a new way of doing politics. And, you know, the fact that Labour's been lukewarm about it so far is to its own cost. So Labour should have been more enthusiastic about local mayors. Definitely. Um, I think we're beginning to see that, you know, I, I would say that in 2017, when I first stood, the public was sceptical about the idea Um white elephant, another layer, we don't need it. That was a common thing to hear on the doorstep in 2017. We didn't hear that a month or so ago in 2021. People generally were voting in a way which said, OK, we can see this has got some potential. We can see it's given a greater voice uh, to the north of England. We can see it can change things. Um, and yeah, we're, we're open-minded to this idea now. But you know, it's obviously been hitherto something that the Conservative Party has pushed forward. And as I say, I think Labour's been too lukewarm uh, about it. The lesson from Scotland is, if you don't take devolution seriously, you know, if you go back to that critique that Labour treated Scottish Labour as the branch office and all of that, then I think you, you, you ultimately pay a price. I think people do want more. Uh, there's a stronger sense of regional and local identity these days. People want more 
ability to do more for themselves. And the lesson is from history for Labour to embrace that and in almost kind of colonise that idea and, um, and build it from the bottom up. Has it been a mistake for Labour to embrace issues of gender and of identity and that sort of thing? Well, I think we, Labour has to reflect on how we raise those issues. There are real issues there. We, we, we stand for a more equal society. But if you only talk about that through, you know, the, the, the different groups, uh, it, it can sound divisive. So if you only talk about women's pay, for instance, Jeremy, you kind of leave low-paid men thinking, well, who's talking for me? And I think that is uh, something that Labour needs to think about and in some ways correct. So, for instance, better, in my view, to talk about the social care workforce if you want to do something about women's pay, because obviously there are many working social care, but it's largely a women's pay issue. Um, the idea that people are paid less than a real living wage for devoting their life looking after other people's parents is a, a scandal that shames this country. And... I think if you were to, to speak to the, that issue, which is, as I say, a, you know, a, a terrible indictment of us as a country, that we pay less than a real living wage, less than people need to live on for looking after other people's relatives. I mean, that's what it is. Let's say it as it is. You know, that is a more unifying message that the country can get behind rather than constantly talking about it, uh, if you like, looking like we're backing one group over another. I think Labour needs to have a more unifying language about all of this. Why did Labour make this mistake? Uh, I, I mean, I think Labour has changed over the years um, in that, you know, it's, it's perhaps not as rooted in, in the trade union movement as it once was. And I personally believe, if I go back to when I first came into Parliament, you know, there were some kind of trade unionists of the old school that kind of, I think, had a, a, way, of, a way of raising these issues that, um, you know, were, were, was more in touch. And I think, you know, my generation was more the university-educated generation of Labour politicians. And I think there was a lack of connection with the, with the, uh, the reality on the, on the shop floor in the community. So, you know, times change, uh, politics changes. Um, but, you know, Labour needs to kind of go back to kind of authentic representation of, of people and doing that in a unifying way. And, you know, that's easier said than done, of course. And I'm not saying I've got a monopoly of how to do it, but, but that, is, that is what we need to do to, um, you know, to look less like we are, you know, focused on the obsession of people in Westminster, much more rooted in our communities. And, and that has been a... Uh, a feature of labour that's been lost in recent times. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. It does seem that there's an awful lot of mistakes being made, and you were part of the the decision-making core in the party who made them. Oh, I'm not saying I'm in any way uh, blameless, Jeremy. I look back on our time in government and um, do recognise that there were you know, things that should have been done that weren't done. We should have put the railways under public control. We should have put the buses back under public control. We should have built more uh, council housing, social housing in that period. But, now here's the but, overall I think we can be very proud of many of the things that Labour did in that period, 1997 to, to 2000. So, as ever in life, it's a, you know, I think it's a broadly positive picture for us, for that government, but, but it's a mixed picture. Well, then why have people and, stopped voting for you? Um, for some of the reasons that I've been giving about that loss of emotional connection. Um, I, and I think that runs quite, quite deep, and it's a, a change that we saw first in Scotland, but is now moving to some degree down the north of England. We've got to got to stop that. I was in, obviously, the Brown cabinet when I put forward a plan to reform social care. You, you might remember that, Jeremy. I then put the same idea to Ed Miliband and Ed Balls when we were in that first term in opposition. And on both times, I, I couldn't persuade them to back it. You know, this is basically to provide social care on NHS terms Nothing else, nothing can convince me, not you, not anybody, that that isn't the right thing to do for the 21st century. It's the, absolutely the right way, both to provide better social care for people, fairer social care, but also to allow social care to be integrated with the NHS, because then you're talking about the same funding uh, principle. And what I found was Labour in that period had lost the courage of its convictions. It, it had lost the ability to put forward a very big social reform to the country and make an argument to people about why it was the right thing to do. If I go back to our time in government, early on in government, we did make an argument about raising tax to increase funding in the NHS, and we, we convinced people. Um, by the time we come to the end of our time in government, we seem to have lost that confidence, and have, as far as I can see, never got it back, actually. Sometimes our offer is too timid, it's too um, nuanced. Um, opposition has to be painted in primary colours and at times I don't think we are putting forward those bold strokes that, that let the country know what Labour stands for. It can be too managerial um, and that's something that we've got to snap out of. But when you look at where places where Labour is in control, for example, this librarian in Wigan who's been suspended for criticising the council... Well, I should know about that, but I'm not sure I do, actually. I don't know what, um, what, what's, involved, uh, what's involved in that particular case. I mean, that would be 
an individual disciplinary thing. It wouldn't necessarily be a Labour uh, decision as, as such. Where Labour is in control, look at Preston. Huge plaudits there for uh, the moves to own more of the local economy so that it can be built up and wealth can be kept within the, the Preston area. I think we've done some things in Greater Manchester to show that Labour in power can make a real difference. I got a, a good good result at the uh, mayoral election and I would put it down to the promise we made to bring buses back under public control. That is Labour in power doing Labour things that the public support. And you know that where we do that and where we go bolder, we, we get rewarded. And I, I would say let's keep doing more of that and become a bit more confident uh, in, in the, uh, the policy offer we put forward. Did anything happen as a consequence of George Osborne's talk about the Northern Powerhouse? Um, yes. I mean, I, I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you as Mayor of Greater Manchester um, if, if nothing happened. So, yes, actually, George was on to something. I've said this to him. He talked more about the north of England than any Chancellor I can remember in my lifetime. There's no point me... Um, kind of denying that because it's true. Where I could criticise is in saying so far the Northern powerhouse hasn't, the foundations haven't even been laid, you know. Leveling up seems now to apply to everywhere um, or indeed just favoured parts of the North that vote a certain way. So, you know, the, the, the promise we were given in 2014, because it's that long ago now, he came to Manchester and promised us a Northern powerhouse. Well, well, it hasn't hasn't happened yet. It doesn't mean, though, that some things um, haven't happened. We have got modest devolution of power to the North. The North's voice is louder, I think, because of myself, Steve Rotherham, Dan Jarvis, Tracy Brabin now in West Yorkshire, and Jamie Driscoll up in the North East. Labour's voice in the North is, is louder. And I think we are using it to good effect. I think the North of England is is higher up the agenda when it comes to transport investment, for instance, than it's been but it's still the case that the Northern powerhouse is more slogan than substance. And it's still the case that levelling up is more slogan than substance. OK, give me give yeah. me half a dozen policies. If you were Prime Minister, what would you do instead of this perpetual whinge about how the North is ignored by the South? Give, us, give, give me some practical policies. I would have London-style public transport all over the North. So there we go. There's one. That means all of it under public control, as it is in London, and always was, because when Margaret Thatcher deregulated public transport, she exempted London from it. So London-style public transport all over the north. Let me put this to you directly, Jeremy. This is an issue that you never hear talked about in Parliament, um, and this is part of Parliament's problem. If you want to catch a bus in Harper Hay, Greater Manchester, it can cost you over £4. If you want to do the same in Harringay, London, £1.55. How can it be possibly fair that public transport is more expensive in the poorest parts of the country? So London, London level fares, a daily cap on what people can spend, integrated transport all over the north of England are the same level that London has had for decades. There is one thing I would absolutely do as Prime Minister, and I think it would change people's lives, it would connect them to opportunity, it would create uh, the, the possibility of a more productive economy. And there would be a massive single-tier authority overseeing it, would there? 
Yeah, so on a city region basis, Liverpool um, are on with their own plan to do the same. So they have Mersey Rail already, so they, they control that. We control the tram system. What you want and in all of these be a similar organisation in West Yorkshire a and a similar one up in the North East. controlling mind, a single body, integrating all modes of transport into a London-style system with London-level fares. That is levelling up. If you give the 2.8 million people of Greater Manchester London-level fares, you are levelling up their lives. No question about it. Why not go the whole way and make it as embracing of devolution as Scotland has been? Well, that's a good question. And I think it opens up a difference between what we're doing and what is happening in Scotland. So that is... Dis so it's that a big is problem in defining the North, of course, isn't it? Yeah, but that's devolution to a national level. And what's happened in Scotland is to build the case for independence, the Scottish government have kind of hoovered power out of the local regional level to create... Scottish entities, so for instance, Police Scotland, you know, they abolished local police forces up there to bring them all into one centralised system that, that it goes under the Scotland banner. And I think they've done that with other public services as well. And I think that's Labour's opportunity in Scotland, Jeremy. I think deep devolution is, is the 21st century um, uh, issue. You know, cities are going to be the drivers of change. To give those cities more power and the people in those places more power to do more for themselves, building from the bottom up. So, you know, in many ways, Aberdeen or Stirling or Dundee, these places don't have enough power. And the Scottish government hasn't given them enough uh, power. And that's our potential way back in in Scotland. You know, going back to people's first loyalty, which is to the local place where they live, giving it more sense of uh, control over its own destiny. I, I think that is a way back because Scottish devolution, I think, is, 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 is flawed because it is leaving a real gap at the local level. It tends to ignore local localities, doesn't it? Yeah, um, and I think that is where all politicians have, have gone wrong in recent times. It's why so many towns, cities feel neglected. We've all lived in a, uh, a London-centric country all of our lives and you know, anger about that is kind of being expressed in different ways. I think some of that came out at the Scottish independence referendum. Some of that was expressed during the Brexit vote. Um, so I think that that anger has kind of been channeled into those areas, whereas actually let's channel it more positively into place-based devolution. You know, the thing I feel leaving Westminster is you're liberated really from, the, from the, um, the way it works down there. It's always party first down there. It's point scoring first. Whereas in my current role, it's place first. You know, I speak for Greater Manchester first and foremost. Of course, I'm a Labour politician, but I am speaking for all people in Greater Manchester um, yeah, first. Part, place first, not party first. And that actually, Jeremy, creates the conditions for a more unifying way of doing politics. Because people of all persuasions can say, well, actually, we all are loyal to the place. So you're starting off on a better footing than always starting out for the, you know, the divisions of party politics. Every MP can make that claim about the constituency they represent, that they represent everybody in it. Didn't you when you were an MP? I did, but there's a problem with that because then you're told to vote a certain way. There's a certain thing called a three-line whip. And sometimes you might have been like, oh, God, I'm not sure about this. And, and yet you're told, no, you've got to go in and, and vote that way. And that's 
a critique I've made of Westminster. You know, you remember me when I was on, on the way up and, you know, doing the right thing and ambitious and I don't mind admitting it. I was obviously a, a, a team player, Labour loyalist and all, all of that. What I learned to my own cost over the years was actually the, the more you kind of go into that world, the less of yourself comes over to the, to the public in many ways. Give me a specific instance. Well, the, the specific instance would be in 2015, in the middle of the second Labour leadership contest in which I stood, when I was, believe it or not, the front runner, and persuaded the party to... They were originally going to abstain on the welfare reform bill, which was a very divisive piece of legislation. And I persuaded them to back a reasoned amendment, which without going into all the details, you'll know the, the difference between abstaining and a reasoned amendment. A reasoned amendment is, a, is opposition. It says decline to give the bill a reading, but it's qualified opposition. And then when Jeremy Corbyn came out and did the wholehearted version, you know, I, I lost complete momentum. And, um, uh, and I wouldn't say it was the only reason why I lost that election, but it was a contributory reason. And I, I, this is my critique, you see. Working within that Westminster system where you're told to vote a certain way and stick to the line to take and all the rest of it, in the end, it can make a fraud out of you in that it can make you sound, say things you don't believe in, vote for things you're not sure about. And, and that's a problem with it. That is a problem with the Westminster system. Yeah, but what did you say that you don't believe in or didn't believe in at the time? It makes you vote in certain ways where you're just not, as I said, 100% sure. Um, you know, I could look back at uh, votes that, that we had throughout that time in government where, you know, you were kind of, oh, I don't know, 50-50 at times. You were just kind of, but then you had, the, you know, the, all of the pressure of the system to, to vote in a, in a certain way. And I think that's the, that's the problem. Um, or the line to take is not one that you would quite support, you know, and, and um, that, that's what Westminster does to, um, to people. What did Westminster do to you? Well, it made me fall out of love with it in the end. You know, I kind of had a, you know, I, I don't regret my time there and I, I don't in any way want to say it was, it's all bad, but I, in the end, could see how Westminster was not a world that was allowing me to kind of do what I came into politics to do. And the, and the, the moment I really understood that, when the penny dropped in a major way, was in 2009 when I went to Anfield on the 20th anniversary of the Hillsborough disaster. And I agonised about whether I should go because obviously I'm from those parts and I knew I'd be stepping out to speak to thousands and thousands of people who I grew up with, who knew my mum and dad, who, you know, I was so bound up with, with, with what they um, knew, what they felt. And yet the professional me, the minister, was in a government that had done nothing for them. And it was a real ch change point in my political uh, career, Jeremy. It, 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 um, it, it kind of, the scales, I suppose, fell from my eyes a bit at that point in time. And I, if you look back, I think I've probably pursued a slightly more independent path uh, from that point uh, onwards. We did uh, reopen Hillsborough, um, but other things as well. You know, I kind of, you know, I just realised that, you know, how could, how could the entire Westminster system, and I include the media in this as well, ignore the fact that an English city was crying injustice for 20 years. You know, the, the North has been treated in ways that the South just wouldn't be treated. 
Uh, and I kind of came to the view that, you know, that that wouldn't change with more of the same. And I, I was on a different path, really, from, from that point onwards. I'm still trying to get from you an example of how you were made to vote for policies you didn't support. Well, I gave you that 2015 example. So the reasoned amendment. I mean, I regret that now. I should have abstained. I should have abstained. I should have voted against. Um, but I work within the system. So I persuaded Harriet Harman, then acting leader, to move from abstention to a reasoned amendment. And being the team player that I always tried to be, I thought, well, having moved the party's position, I now am duty bound to back it, which I did. But it was definitely to my own to my own cost. And you know, that is just a concrete example of what I'm what I'm saying. Um, and why, at times, people who try and do the loyal thing or work with the way that Westminster is asking you to work, you can end up looking, um, you know, I don't know, careerist or what, or, you know, cardboard cutout and all the rest of it, all the critiques that are made. It doesn't allow people to be as authentic as they would want to be. And I think it's a problem with Westminster politics, and it's why it's fallen out of favour over the years. You're using words like authentic as if somehow, just because you're in Manchester, the world looks different. In the grown-up world, politics is the language of priorities, isn't it? It is, but politics is, is at its core representation, isn't it? And it's about speaking for people in a way that rings true uh, and is born out of a real knowledge of the people that you are working to support and i i would say that you know what we did last year to challenge some of what the government tried to do to greater manchester demonstrated that you know when they tried to lock down uh, parts of greater manchester in october 2020 on the back of a 67 percent furlough and bear in mind it was the pubs that were being short the betting shops that were being short it was the taxi drivers who were going to see their earnings dry up you know I spoke to that, uh, and I think that was a different form of representation than people are able to do in Westminster. It comes bottom up, and obviously I'm speaking for a large geographical area that doesn't always get its voice heard. So I was speaking, I hope, for people who who do get neglected in a, in a north of England that gets neglected, and I think it's possibly why it kind of struck a chord with people. And you wouldn't view this as a sectional representation, a sectional representation of publicans, taxi drivers, betting shop owners and the like? No, because this is a place that, you know, has a strong sense of social solidarity. People felt we should be speaking up for those, for those people. Why should they get a two-thirds furlough when everyone else had had a fourth-fifths furlough? You know, that was just straightforwardly wrong. And I think people want things to be challenged. I think if I was doing it to try and invent a fight with the government, that would have been different. But I wasn't. I tried to resolve this with them behind closed doors. Couldn't. Uh, and on a point of principle, um, uh, took, that, took that argument public. Um, and I, I think people want to see that. When I came into this role, I, I made a clear public commitment that I wouldn't just oppose the government for the sake of it. I said that where they get things right, I will support them. And I've actually just been doing that today over the latest um, uh, package of support they've announced for Greater Manchester. And I've supported that. But where they don't get it right, and where they don't treat us fairly or treat us wrongly, 
then I will call that out as strongly and as effectively as I can. And that's what I've tried to do in this role. But you promised to end homelessness, for example, didn't you? And you haven't done that. Not quite. I said I would end rough sleeping. And there is quite a big difference between those two things. You know, rough sleeping is something that is fixable, um, whereas homelessness is a much bigger challenge that requires, obviously, the reversal of lots of policies that we saw in the 1980s, again, which New Labour didn't, didn't reverse. Um, but rough sleeping, we had about 300 people um, sleeping rough every night in Greater Manchester when I was elected. The lowest level we got it down to was 40 um, at one point in 2020. Uh, and it, it, it fell for much of the last uh, few years when I was in office. And of the people that are still, the latest count was 71, I think. But of the 71, um, the majority of them had received an offer of support. I created a scheme called a bed every night, which looks after five over 500 people every single night in Greater Manchester. It wasn't there before I came into office um, and it's got the numbers sleeping rough right down. Um, I decided to say end rough sleeping. Why? Well, it'd be a Westminster thing to say, oh, well, I'll cut it by 25 percent by 2022. What use is that to somebody sleeping rough? The reason I said we will end rough sleeping is because I wanted to galvanize people, you know, build a kind of movement of people working to, to, to turn the tide, and we have done. And that's what I mean by a better way of doing of doing politics. I've definitely stepped out of the old ways, and I think we're the better for doing that. OK, that's one example. You've given us public transport as an, as, as an area that ought to be coordinated between all northern areas. What would an industrial strategy for the north look like? It's interesting because Theresa May was working with us on one. She asked us all to, to develop local industrial strategies, which we did. And Greater Manchester's was, well, it still is something that we, we hold to. It was about industrial leadership. So go back to when we led the first industrial revolution. I've said that I don't believe there's any reason why we can't lead the fourth. I don't believe there's any reason why. We can't be the UK's leading digital and tech city region and the UK's leading green city region. That's that's the vision that I've set out. And that, I think, is a 21st century industrial strategy for Greater Manchester. And it's not just words. We are the fastest growing digital and tech hub in Europe. I'm very proud to be able to say that to you. There's been a monumental change in our digital industry across Greater Manchester, Media City you'll know about, which has been a big part of it, but also GCHQ who've come to Greater Manchester and got a major innovation hub there. We are a major success story when it comes to the digital and tech economy. And then when it comes to the green economy, we are um, the only UK city to have a science-led target for a zero carbon city region, 2038. And the thing about that is, Going faster on the green agenda is the route to better jobs, better homes, better transport. You can actually bring an industrial strategy together with, a, if you like, a, you know, a social strategy uh, to level up Greater Manchester. The first industrial revolution was made by capitalist entrepreneurs, wasn't it? Why do you think that politicians can make a new one? No, it will still have to be uh, entrepreneurs. It will have to be born out of the... Uh, great centres of, of research that we have, you know, the University of Manchester and all of the great discoveries that have happened there, it's the splitting of the atom in days gone by, but graphene more recently, that's where the new industrial revolution will be built, but it obviously requires 
people in political power with political power to back them and to uh, invest in them and that's what we've we've been doing successfully in Greater Manchester for a number a number of years it's not idle talk you know there is a growing industrial success story but frustratingly the local industrial strategy project was kind of ripped up when the new government came in and this is another one of those things about Whitehall the goldfish mentality of it where something's the flavor of the month and then it's gone the next minute that's that is holding the country back and that needs to change Andy Burnham, thanks very much indeed. Thanks very much, Jeremy. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.